Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host this week, Chelsea White. Coming up on the show, there's the very intriguing news that now all of the four base pairs that make up the DNA double helix have been found on meteors. Very cool story. Back down on Earth, we've also got a report from one of the best studied ecosystems on the planet. And here's a clue as to what Rowan saw there. And extra points if you can guess the bird that that is. It's a very common one, but uh, you get points anyway. Also this week, we're hearing from Professor of Global Public Health, Devi Sridhar, on the future of COVID. And Leia, you're here to talk about particle physics. Hello. Hi. Yes, I have an update on that big W boson story we had a couple weeks ago. All that to come. And here's your usual reminder that if you go to newscientist.com slash pod 20, you can get a 20% discount off a subscription to New Scientist. That link is newscientist.com slash pod 20. Okay, we've got a couple of stories this week about alien life. First, let's talk about panspermia. It's the idea that life has an extraterrestrial origin. Yeah, that's, so that's the idea that life was seeded from, life on Earth was seeded from outer space. And this idea has been around for ages, and I didn't know quite how long it had been around. I wonder if you two could guess who first came up with the idea. I actually don't know. Do you, Leah? Um, I... I thought it was Carl Sagan, but um, now that you're saying it, I think it might be like Aristotle or something. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It's um, well, it's Anaxagoras, uh, who's a fifth century BC ancient Greek uh, philosopher. Uh, yeah, wow. so the clue comes from the name, uh, which is ancient Greek, uh, panspermia, all seed. But it's fair to say this idea hasn't been particularly well thought of as a theory, has no. it? No, no. Like, well, we don't see life forms raining down on us from space. Uh, and space is, a, you know, it's quite a harsh place to live if you're a life form. But we have started detecting some interesting things in space, not life, but interesting things in space and on meteorites. Yeah, that's what we've got this week. It's the discovery of two of the key building blocks of DNA, cytosine and thymine, in meteorites that are older than Earth. I'm sure you'll remember uh, the DNA double helix is made of pairs of molecules called nucleobases. That's the GATC of genetic code. And previously, two of these four nucleobases, adenine and guanine, have been found in meteorites. And now they found the other two, cytosine and thymine. Yeah, I mean, it is really cool. I guess it's only to be expected as we'd already found the other bases. But it's not like we found the double helix itself, is it? Because, well, like these compounds can just self-assemble, can't they? 
Yeah, they can, but we don't know how they might, you know, self-assemble in space. <laughs> yeah, that's the big thing. They've also, you know, found uracil, which is the base that's used by RNA instead of thymine. Yeah. Okay, so we've got this detection, and it's in meteorites older than Earth now. So of all primary nuclear bases in DNA and RNA, and that's pretty amazing. And one of the researchers we spoke with said this gives stronger support to the idea that biologically relevant molecules from meteorites could have played a significant role in the development of life on Earth. So the idea now is that maybe rather than these DNA bases arising from scratch on Earth, they could have been delivered on meteors and then they somehow started getting replicated, right? Yeah, I guess if they, if they form a template that they could catalyze their own replication. But yeah, it, it totally leaves open the question of where in space or on what planetary body these space seeds <laughs> were themselves <laughs> made. I mean, you know, some people say oh, it was made by aliens and it was deliberately sent out into space to seed life. And and when I say some people, it's like not just any, like Francis Crick said that. Um, and oh. he, he called it directed panspermia. But yeah, it might be, though, that nuclear bases just self-assemble easily. And so it's not that surprising we find them. Yeah, this is always the question I sort of come to myself, which is when we talk about stuff, uh, the stuff of life being delivered to Earth. It always just shifts the question of, okay, well, then how yeah. did that arise in another location, right? Yeah. 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 The other great story we have this week is the proposal that meteorites on Mars might be good places to look for preserved traces of past life. Yeah, that's the cool idea of like when the meteorite hits a planet, it, <laughs> it entombs any microbes that uh, happen to be sitting there because we know that's what happens on Earth. So, you know, the Perseverance rover or you know, maybe Elon Musk when he's up on Mars, you know, if you find a meteorite there, it's worth looking at that as it's this time capsule containing that could contain traces of um, any ancient life forms that were around. Now, next up, we've got a story on how the brain suppresses unwanted memories. Chelsea, you've edited this story. Yeah, this is from our reporter, Jason Murgesu. And it seems that people may have a warning signal in the brain that helps keep us from having intrusive thoughts. This could be anything from simply an unpleasant memory to, you know, more serious conditions where people have trouble keeping their mind from focusing on unwanted memories or anxieties. So, you know, when people say they've they've locked away some memory in a room in my brain and, you know, I've locked the door, thrown away the key. That's kind of quite a close analogy in the way that there there is a way that the brain can, can shut away unwanted memories. Yeah, a little bit. And and you can imagine right away how that might go wrong, right? <laughs> so the door doesn't shut properly and the bad memories can come out. This sort of thing might contribute to things like PTSD or anxiety disorders. Okay. All right. So how are they going about studying it? So the interesting thing here is that the researchers used two types of brain scanning. They used fMRI scans, which are good at telling us where things are happening in the brain. And they also used EEG, which can pin down the timing of those things. So they had these participants analyzed in both ways at the same time, and each person was told to memorize pairs of words. And then while they were being scanned, they were shown the first word and either a green light or a red light. The green light means think of the word that's paired with the one you're shown, and the red light means don't think of the paired word. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> that thing where you're told, whatever you do, do not think of an elephant right now. <laughs> right. And, uh, and then you just can't help but think of an elephant. because It's hard to be asked not to think of something, isn't it? 
Yeah. And when I first read it, I thought, how how does this, you know, work? But the researchers say that pairing the words makes it a bit easier to tease this out. So you can still think about the word that you're shown. You just don't have to recall the paired word. And so what they found was that 350 milliseconds after seeing the red light, the brain region known for managing attention sent the signal to another brain area that's known to be involved in working memory. Right. So this is the signal saying, put a lid on it. Don't think of that thing. (laughs) Yeah, that's what they think. It's a kind of warning system that signals what's called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And that takes the lead in suppressing the memory. So it usually takes about 500 milliseconds to consciously remember something that's associated with, you know, an object or an idea that you've encountered. So this is faster. That means it's a subconscious signal that's happening. Mm. And the warning signal was stronger after several repetitions of this word recall trial. So the researchers say it's a bit like you see, you know, an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend's car parked outside a shop. And the first time you see it, you might be flooded with memories. But if you see it in the same spot repeatedly, your brain can send signals to suppress the memory, which then goes on to fade over time. (laughs) Okay, that's that's all very cool. But, um, you know, with these things, you know, people don't. So we don't struggle to try to remember or not remember a certain word pair. So, you <laughs> yeah. know, how does this relate to the real world? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, with post-traumatic stress disorder or OCD, these unwanted thoughts are very distressing. So the same group of researcher has, researchers has done similar studies using more distressing stimuli than just word pairs. And they see they've seen similar activity in the same brain regions they've seen here. Okay, so... The idea then is, you know, you can get targets for potential treatments for people who have PTSD or OCD or, you know, uh, some other anxiety disorder. Yeah, that's the hope. And potentially with some brain training, people could learn how to avoid those unwanted memories. Let's take a break to talk about love. It is an awe-inspiring and complex phenomenon, and we'll be examining it in our next online event. Yeah, in this talk, evolutionary anthropologist Dr. Anna Machin will take the audience through a roller coaster ride of the why, how, who, and what of human love. Using the latest evidence from neuroscience, genetics, psychology, and physiology, she'll explain how love evolved as a form of biological bribery. <laughs> yeah, and we'll also examine how it is both a universal and highly personal experience, how love is the greatest factor in our health and longevity, and that as humans, we are lucky to be able to experience love with so many people and beings. Love sits at the center of what it is to be human. Come and find out why. Go to newscientist.com love to find out more. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We often talk on the show about some of the dramatic consequences of climate change, like losing the Amazon rainforest or the Antarctic ice shelf, and the, the impacts of sea level rise and heat waves and stuff like that. But this week, we wanted to do something different. Yeah, this week the pod went on a field trip uh, to a wood in Oxfordshire. And it's not just any old wood, it's uh, it's called Whiteham Wood, which I don't know, you've probably not heard of it, but amongst biologists and especially ornithologists, it's got a legendary status because great tits and blue tits have been studied there continuously for 75 years now. Uh, so it was their birthday when I went. And it's probably the most deeply studied patch of land in the world. And Oxford University biologist Ella Cole showed me around. Obviously, it's famous for the tit study, but are people studying kind of everything here? All the insects, all, all the soil, the invertebrates? Yeah, I think pretty much anything you could study in Whiteham is being studied in Whiteham. I mean, I always say to people that it's the most studied piece of scrap of land in the world, probably in terms of the number of scientific papers that come out of it. Um, I've no idea if this is true, but it sounds like it should be. <laughs> yes, there are a few boxes, just another sort of three, four hundred metres down here that have chicks in them. Um, we've only got a handful of nests with chicks so far. The first great tits to lay this year started on the 28th of uh, April almost uh, a full month earlier than the the first egg ever recorded in the study in 1947. Wow. <laughs> so that really demonstrates this uh, shift um, in laying due to climate change. So. Oh. oh wow, look at this. One, two, three, four, five, six. I think there are eight, so there should be eight in there. Wow. So How these, old are they? They are two days old. They hatched oh the day before yesterday. Yeah, eyes completely closed, aren't they? Yeah, so their eyes open, um, start to open when they're sort of six, seven days old. So they also can't thermoregulate at this point, so um, the mum still needs to, to brood them to keep them warm. Wow. Oh, look. Can I put one in my hand? Yeah, sure. dinosaur. I think people are divided on whether they think they're cute or extremely ugly. But oh, a bit of both maybe. <laughs> definitely. So this isn't even the dinosaur phase when they're about a week old when the feather quills start to come through they just look really sort of prehistoric. So you can see they're basically like a sort of digestive system with <laughs> legs. You can actually see most of their insides. So that tummy's full of caterpillars is it? Hopefully. Amazing, just gaping mouths. It's really clear that signal of the gaping, isn't it? Yeah. The sort of outline of the mouth. Yeah. The it's bill. A very clear target yeah, for look the at parents that. to yeah. aim at, isn't yeah. it? Are they doing that because you're calling to them? Um, yeah. If they hear a high-pitched sort of noise, then they think it's time for some food. So, Eyebrows, funny as well. I mean, the transformation that these birds make is just truly incredible. So in the space of sort of two weeks, 
they'll go from being these sort of blind, naked balls of flesh, and each one only weighs a gram when it's born. And two weeks later, it'll be a fully formed, feathered sort of bird, almost ready to, to fly. And they actually weigh more than their parents when they're two weeks old. So, wow. So I think the human equivalent of that would be sort of raising eight newborn babies into ten stone teenagers in two weeks. So it's just incredible. And they'll breed the next year? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, if they survive that long. But. Right. <laughs> so the parents need to collect about 10,000 caterpillars in that two-week period in order to, to do that. And a lovely snug nest there, isn't it? Yes, that's lined with badger fur. <laughs> nice and cosy. So it's a blue tit nest and she hasn't started incubating yet and you can often tell that straight away because the eggs are still covered. So when they So the eggs are under there yeah. under the feather under the So when they're laying they'll they'll lay their egg first thing in the morning, cover them up and then just leave for the day. So it won't be until they start incubating that they sort of uncover and sort of open up the, the cup. Wow. So that's a So the parents can bring on the hatching date quite can they um, adjust it themselves by the amount of incubation they give it? Yes, they can. Um, the females can sort of fine-tune the, the timing of hatching. Um, obviously, the most important thing is when they lay the eggs, but even after that point, um, they can adjust the timing of hatching either by delaying incubation, so not starting to incubate as soon as they finish laying their clutch, um, and they can, but they can also adjust the intensity of their incubation, so spend sort of less time or more time on the eggs in a day. Um, and we found they actually do that in response to sort of daily temperature. So if it's a very warm day and they're probably kind of realising that the caterpillar peak is going to come sooner if we continue to have more warm days, they will spend sort of all day sort of down on the eggs incubating, trying to get these eggs to hatch as soon as possible. Whereas if it goes cold, they'll sort of stay off more, trying to delay that hatch. What about the range of um, great tits and blue tits? So like if you look in warmer countries, will that give us a clue as to how much they're going to be able to adjust to climate change here? Potentially. So, I mean, you get great tits all over um, Europe and into bits of parts of Asia, but it's kind of more complicated than that because not all populations are tracking climate change um, to the same extent. So we know from our research over the last 75 years that the white and great tits and British great tits in general are tracking climate change really well. So they're keeping up with the, the other sort of members of their food chain, the, the caterpillars they feed on and the oak trees that the caterpillars feed on. They're all sort of sh have shifted in line with rising temperatures. Um, so sort of two and a half, three weeks earlier than in the 1940s. But that isn't true of all great tit populations. So in the Netherlands, for example, um, their great tits are not tracking climate change um, as well. So there's, there's a lot of variation there. And that's one of the kind of things we're trying to understand why that variation arises. So the birds in the woods, everything here is doing a fairly good job of coping so far. Yes. So we know that over the last... 75 years the great tits have advanced their, their breeding so if we were walking around the woods this time of year sort of late April in the the late 1940s we'd see the sort of first eggs starting to be laid but now we'll commonly find eggs in the first week in April or even actually the last few years we've seen eggs in late March and similarly 
the caterpillars are hatching earlier and the leaves are coming into bud earlier. I mean, spring timing is incredibly important to woodland birds such as great tits and blue tits and that's because they take advantage of the superabundance in caterpillars that happens in spring and they do this to, so they're able to raise very large broods of chicks because this superabundance of caterpillars is actually it only happens for quite a short period so they've really got to hit a very specific sort of few weeks really and the sort of impressive thing is they're having to sort of guess when this peak is going to happen because they start laying their eggs about a month ahead of that caterpillar peak and if they get it wrong and breed too early or too late then they might miss that peak and there won't be enough food around to feed their chicks so it's sort of incredibly important for them to get get this right this is their sort of key decision in their life really um, is starting when to start laying their eggs ah that makes me want to get out into the forest Yes, and me again as well. Keen listeners will recall that a few weeks ago, on episode 113 of the show, we were talking about the shocking discovery of a possible anomaly in the standard model of particle physics. Yes, shocking. It was uh, was really exciting, actually, because, you know, as we said, physicists are desperate to find something beyond the standard model of physics in order to explain dark matter and dark energy and stuff like that. And Leia, right, so this this has already really spurred physicists on, hasn't it? Yeah, since that announcement a few weeks ago, there have been, I believe, more than 65 new papers just trying to explain why the W boson would be this massive. Wow. Um, Yeah, the ideas have really been blasting out. So remind us what this anomaly is again. So to do that, first I want to explain a little bit about what the W boson is. Uh, It is a particle, and it carries the weak nuclear force in a way similar to how the photon carries the electromagnetic force. And it's important to interactions between neutrinos and other subatomic particles. And this new measurement, which comes from the Tevatron instrument in Illinois, measured the mass of the W boson and got something that is higher than the generally accepted value. And it's just a tiny bit higher, but statistically, if the sort of generally accepted standard model value is true, the odds of getting a measurement this far off are wildly low. Um, So it really makes us think that the mass of the W boson actually is significantly higher than we thought it was. Yeah, so they talk about the sigma results, don't they, physicists? And uh, five sigma is a is something they go, yeah, that's a result. But this was like at least five sigma, right? It's a bombshell of a result. Yeah, so it was five sigma from the other measured results, which are already a little bit higher than what's predicted in the standard model. So it's actually seven sigma away from the standard model result. So it's one of the most secure particle physics measurements in modern history. It's a really high sigma. Yeah, that seven sigma was what really caught my eye. I thought, how have they done this? Seven (laughs) sigma, baby. Yeah. Yeah. And so if that W boson mass is so far from what's predicted by the standard model, that indicates that something's wrong with the standard model, which in one sense would be shocking because everything the standard model predicts has been extraordinarily accurate thus far. But it would be sort of a little less surprising in that we already knew the standard model was incomplete. As Rowan said earlier, it doesn't explain dark matter. It doesn't explain 
why there's more matter than antimatter. It doesn't really even have a place for gravity. So we know there has to be something else. Yeah. Yeah. Those are some bit, pretty big omissions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I imagine the, all these physicists were just waiting and it's like they're, they're parched plants and water's been poured on them and they've poured out the, you know, there's this flood of papers have come out. So what are they saying? Yeah. So uh, I spoke to a, a bunch of particle physicists and basically across the board, they were saying like, actually, it's really easy to come up with ideas that accommodate this higher mass. Hmm. And I think for a lot of people, that's promising because it means that there are ways to explain it, which for theorists make makes it feel a little bit more real than something that's completely mysterious. We have no clue how to explain this. What, like ways to explain it by stretching the standard model, you mean, or without ways to explain it without having to chuck out the standard model? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're ever going to chuck out the standard model just because most of its <laughs> predictions are so accurate. Yeah. But we will have to add to it, and a, a lot of these are adding extra particles, like an extra Higgs boson, which is important because it sort of mediates how particles get their mass. So it makes sense. More Higgs boson, more mass. Um, yeah, there were some sort of uh, fantastical Higgs suggested. Yeah, uh, things that are like the Technicolor Higgs or the glue ball Higgs. They have these wonderful names that seem like, I think maybe these theorists have been sitting around trying to figure out how that might fit into the standard model. And this W boson mass change sort of lets that happen. Is that right? Yeah. One of the, one of the physicists I spoke to was like, this is really giving people an opportunity to both come up with new ideas, but also to dust those old ideas off and parade them out again. <laughs> now that they can explain this, this measurement, now that there's reason to suspect we might need more in the standard model. Uh, it's a nice example of how, um, experimental results spur theory and vice versa. And I guess we're going to have some more experimental results soon with the, the Large Hadron Collider starting up again, right? Yeah, definitely. And the LHC teams have already started analyzing some of their older data to come up with a new W boson measurement and see if it matches, because we do have to confirm this measurement before we go off and start hunting for a Technicolor Higgs. <laughs> Next up, it's pandemic news. Devi Sridhar is professor of global public health at the University of Edinburgh and the author of a new book, Preventable, How a Pandemic Changed the World and How to Stop the Next One. If you're in the UK, you've almost certainly seen her commenting on the pandemic on TV over the last couple of years. Rowan spoke with her earlier. Devi, thanks for joining us. First of all, I have to ask, how have you had time and headspace to write a book? Well, I think it's like almost a download of my brain and what was happening so I found it quite cathartic to be able just to write it down, probably going to forget it all now and move on with my life. But it's almost like having that chapter captured of what we all went through, the difficulty of different decisions and month by month. And now it's yeah. time to kind of have it there for future, future generations, hopefully, yeah. and walk away. Well, about that, you know, you've been working on public health threats for years. And then we had this big one come along. Um, and I, you know, I just looked up the latest figures and, you know, official deaths are at 6.2 million. The true number of excess deaths caused by COVID are estimated, at, you know, maybe around 20 million people. And at the same time, we've got, we've had vaccine development, we've vaccinated 4.6 billion people. So look, how do you think we've done overall? Well, I think that we've actually done remarkably well, especially compared to 1918, the last comparable global pandemic of the scale, because of how many lives have been saved by vaccination. 
you know, particular countries have struggled, but on the whole, vaccines arrive within a year. We've never developed a vaccine that quickly. The real tragedy now is having vaccines available and the supply not being there in many low-income contexts. So again, preventable deaths happening now in low-income and middle-income contexts because of supply and in high-income contexts like the United States because of misinformation read on Facebook and other platforms in the anti-vax movement. Yeah. So in a way, we've developed the scientific tools remarkably quickly and a whole range of them. I mean, in the book, I have a chapter on the race for a vaccine of how they actually did it so quickly. But the tragedy now of actually how do you get the jabs into arms? One thing that really shocked me has been the rise of anti-vaxxers and anti-mask wearers and, you know, COVID denial even. And some of that sentiment was promoted by politicians. And, and you have had very sharp experience of this. So I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think is behind it? And how can we better communicate what needs to be done now and in the future for future threats? Well, I think there are people who are kind of nervous about new technologies, and then all they have to do is go into a platform like Facebook or YouTube, and there are large accounts, influential accounts, spreading misinformation about either the vaccines not working at all or having very damaging side effects, which then freak people out because they don't know what to believe. And yeah. I think that's been a really difficult thing through the pandemic is kind of the blurring of what's true and what's not true, even by politicians like Bolsonaro in Brazil or Trump in America. But then then you look at places like New Zealand and Jacinda Ardern, and, and then in your book, you talk about Kerala and the success that Kerala's had relative to the rest of India. So how did those countries avoid the sort of Facebook spread untruths and misinformation about it that we've seen in the US and UK in particular? Well, I think they had very good leadership in both places and a lot of mm. trust in their health ministers and very clear information, even daily, on what was happening. Um, so they didn't create any pockets for people to look for information other places. And also high trust in the government. And trust has become more and more important in terms of people thinking, oh, when the government says this, it's in our best interests. And in places where you've seen that kind of trust go away, it's been because people are skeptical of government. United States, a classic case. Yeah. Um, actually, we don't trust the government, we don't trust health services, and so kind of taking a step away from that. And in Britain, we've been lucky with the NHS, such high trust in the NHS, which meant that even if people were frustrated with whatever was happening with the UK government, they were willing to trust the NHS and the health system to get their vaccination and to get boosted later on. Now, I think it's fair to say you've softened from um, having a, a very COVID zero stance, the idea that we should work to totally eradicate the virus to a view that we need to live with it. What's been behind your transition here? Well, I think it's just been changing alongside the evidence and the tools we had. So at the start, obviously, my hope, like everyone else in January 2020, was China would eradicate it and it would be off our worries like SARS and MERS were in a sense of, you know, managed regionally or locally and not becoming global. That window passed. It was seated in various countries. And then it became, okay, in places that could could we actually eliminate it or have maximum suppression, drive cases as low as possible until a vaccine came or some kind of scientific breakthrough? The idea of taking a wave or living with it without having a vaccine would have been catastrophic. And it was catastrophic, the first and second waves, in terms of the lives lost. And I don't think there was any clever way to do it of kind of shielding certain people. We've learned that even with vaccines, which offer such great protection, we're still not able to fully shield people who are immunocompromised or elderly they're still getting the virus. And so I think um, my big shifting point was maximum suppression until we have something that can protect human life. 
it also seemed to be increasingly how you could stay out of massive lockdowns. If your numbers were low enough, you could actually do test and trace like South Korea. If your numbers were low enough, you could keep your economy going. Think of Vietnam, which kept its domestic economy open because they couldn't afford to do furlough and shut down sectors. They stopped international travel. That was the trade-off they took. So it seemed at that point, given the choices we had, that was the best route. And then once we developed mass vaccination, and we also learned that actually vaccines don't stop transmission, we had to learn to live with it. And that's why now I've transitioned with, it's going to be circulated. It's going to be here alongside us. People are going to be reinfected with it. So how do we manage it to limit the death and disability it causes using vaccines, antivirals, testing, new therapeutics, scientific tools, and move away from the harsh NPIs that we had at the start? I remember last year Arundhati Roy saying that the pandemic is a portal between one world and the next and that we can choose to step through the portal into a better world. Is that what we're doing? I think hopefully we're heading towards a better world. I think there are many good things that came out of COVID in terms of scientific progress. We're now having possibly better vaccines using mRNA technologies for diseases that we didn't think we could develop vaccines for, like HIV. But on the flip side, I think it's exposed real inequalities in our world and how you know the difference between the has, those who have a lot, excess actually, and who may probably enrich themselves through the pandemic getting even more, and those who lost a lot and are continuing to lose in today's society. So I hope it kind of brings us together. And, you know, of course, there'll always be a range of wealth and socioeconomic status, but can we bring that range closer together so the spectrum is there, but actually the people at the top maybe are willing to have a bit less and the people at the bottom have a bit more. And that's, I hope, one of the lessons is how interconnected we are and how we do need to look out for each other. That was Debbie Schreeder talking about her new book, Preventable, How a Pandemic Changed the World and How to Stop the Next One. That's it for this week. Do rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen. Thanks to our guest this week, Leah Crane. And thanks again to Ella Cole for showing me around Whiteham Woods. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Chelsea White. Bye for now and take care. See you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.